0: one, basic hip. Welcome to the jazz session. I'm Jason Crane. The jazz session is presented by allaboutjazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. And the show is sponsored by Matt Rock, our first official sponsor. Thanks to the Respect Sextet for the theme music to this show. They're online at respectsextet.com. They've got a lot of great records, and I urge you to go to respectsextet.com and buy their albums and support uh, great independent music. Thanks also to Dave Vrabel, who designed the show's logo, and he's online at twitter.com slash Dave Vrabel, V-R-A-B-E-L, and he's very funny, so please follow him if you like to laugh. This is show number 296, which, A, is cool, and B, means there are four episodes left until number 300. Uh, as I mentioned on the last episode, I'm actually out of town for a couple of weeks, and so I'm re- mixing in a bunch of shows all at once and recording the intros. So I'm actually recording this intro uh, more than a week, more like a week and a half or so before you're hearing this show. So as you're listening, I don't know what the current membership numbers are. But I'm going to guess that I still need some more. Uh, As I'm recording this, I need about three dozen more. But, you know, hopefully more people will have come in by the time you hear it. In any case, I need you to become a member. There are four shows left until number 300, and I would really love for there to be a number 301. Uh, The show, I think, has kind of moved to a, a new and exciting level since I've relocated to New York. And I would love to keep it going, and I think there's a desire in the musical community for it to keep going. And it certainly seems to be a desire among the listeners for it to keep going. And so all we need now is for some of those listeners to convert that desire into membership. And you can do that by going to thejazzsession.com slash join, where you can become a member for as little as 10 bucks a month. Or if you want to just pay it all in one lump sum, you can do $110 a year. And then there are levels above that, 25 or 250 uh, monthly yearly, or $50, $500 monthly yearly. And at that top level, you'll also be mentioned, just like Matt Rock is, as an official sponsor of the show. So if you'd like to come in at that highest level, that's great. But really, any membership level is, uh, is completely wonderful and will help keep the show going. So please do join. August 11th is the 300th show. I mentioned recently, I think I'd mentioned this on the Ken Filiano show and on the Adam Rudolph show that uh, several times in the last, you know, couple of weeks, a couple of months maybe, I've gone out to interview someone and just ended up having this conversation that lasted long after the interview. And such was the case with Joe Feidler, a trombone player, uh, who I had never met before the day that I interviewed him, and it just turned out to be one of those people that you know you talk to each other for 30 seconds and you realize you have quite a bit in common. Uh, we had a great conversation, both on the mic and off, and uh, you get to hear that in just a second after a track from Joe's new album with his trio called Sacred Chrome Orb. This is the opening cut, which is called Occult. <laughs> guest is Joe Feidler. It's uh, so great to have you on the show. Thanks for being here, man. Thank you for having me. Uh, we're uh, talking amongst other things about the new record Sacred Chrome Orb. Um, I think the first thing, and the thing that sticks with me about this record is, to me, I don't think this is probably exactly the right adjective, but it has almost a, a tactile feel when I listen to it. I feel like I'm, uh, like I'm actually there, almost feeling the instruments being played. It just has this close and an intimate and very real physical sound. And I wonder, is that just a, a product of luck in the studio, or is that something you were that you go for? I mean, from the way that Michael Serene like plays brushes on a lot of the tunes to the kind of phonics in your sound, and the fact that you can actually like hear the physicality of the trombone, it just really strikes me as being very present.
1: Wow. I, I mean, I don't necessarily think of it in those terms, but I think we really have a unique concept, and not concept, actually, that's not the right word. I mean, just our, our relationship musically is just really special and more by coincidence. I mean, I met these guys years ago and it just kind of worked and I started writing tunes specifically for these guys. It wasn't the, the whole the whole composition and the concept of the group was built mostly around John and, um But the way we complement each other and listen to one another, just I have not had that in my own groups ever. And even as a sideman... It's been hard to find this, so it's really special, and it's almost telepathic how how the the whole thing works and how we move as this little three-headed organism, you know. So it's a blast. It's I wish we had more performance opportunities, but it's just it's it's the biggest treat for me, especially in the studio when you could really hear. I think that's when we. Ironically, I find. Live, it's so much fun, but the three records we've done are almost more special because just every little nuance you could hear. Someone like when Serene starts doing something on the brushes, and it makes me go laugh. Whereas on a live gig, you know how it is with the stages; it's right. not so. You're not so fortunate to hear every little subtlety like that.
0: Yeah, uh, can you attribute the the almost telepathic connection to anything in particular?
1: I really can I, I just think certain people, just as in conversation or with friendships, it just I stumbled across my, these guys in my life's path, and, and it worked. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and they're so sincere and so honest as people and as music. I mean, just their, their whole package is just they're in tune. If you're sitting across from having dinner, they're, they're listening to you and, and ask astute questions and interact with humor and with grace and dignity and in support. It's They're just special people, I think.
0: We were talking uh, before we turned the microphones on about uh, the trombonist Ray Anderson and about uh, I, I I said, uh, and it sounded like you agreed, that for me one of the hallmarks of his playing is just the honesty, the fact that it's it's just there without artifice. Um, do you feel like that's something that's influenced the way you approach uh, 100%. making this music?
1: I think that's the thing that's most brought me to Ray's music and I was like we were talking about this before. It changed my life. This the the purity and the honesty and the projection of of his just raw emotion and and and, and again you used the word earlier humor the, the humor and the joyousness, which I think I mean I don't want to get on my soapbox at all, but I think the sense of joy of playing music. You know we all well, why we all get into music in the first place because it's fun and we dig it and it makes us feel good, and that he brings that out in his solos. I, I definitely. I mean, there's technical things, of course, that impressed me and blew me away by Ray. I mean, he's just, you know, my favorite trombone player ever, hands down. But, but more important than that was his sense of humor, his sense of purity and honesty. Is that openness definitely? I try to emulate that. I don't really think my playing is reminiscent of Ray's, or compositionally certainly not. But uh, that spirit, I try to bring to my own music.
0: Is there something that you can do as a writer or a performer? to help make sure that you're kind of as close to the bone as possible when it comes to performing or composing the music?
1: That's a good question. Uh, I'm not sure. I mean, compositionally, I think really different. When I write the tunes, I think they're very pure and they're where I'm feeling. But the solos that come out and the end result aren't necessarily directly tied to that. And I don't – like when we went to do this recording, for example, I don't rehearse much before recording because – and I want – john and michael to put their own imprint on it i mean even though a huge percentage of the the compositions are fully notated for everybody there's not a lot of slashes as they say you know but i let them within
0: that do their own thing sure and just uh for the for the listener so by slashes you mean l- large sets of bars where there's just slash marks and the it just like play here within this chord progression exactly. or within this time signature exactly. or whatever we're in okay um and so you said at the beginning that you obviously you specifically wrote this music knowing these were the two other people who were going Absolutely. to play it with you. And, and people say that a lot, and it it always makes me wonder if we get down to it when you're confronted with the blank page, what does that actually mean when you know who the two people are? Does that mean you, you kind of know where their comfort areas are or where you can push them, or how does it affect how you write?
1: Well, there's, there's a couple things. Just emotionally, I, I, I try to... A lot of the tunes are based on certain feelings I've had, and and to be able to have to know where I could breathe and where I could push and pull, where someone's going to support me in within the tune. I know John's going to fill up space. Where if I write less for him, whereas another bass player might not be so intuitive. Is I let me backtrack a second. I think John. I, first of all, I look at John Aber as uh, the bassist, as uh, an accompanist, not a bass player. So that. Right away allows me to be more open in my choices of writing, especially in the improvising se- improvised sections because whereas the, most bass players I think in the jazz idiom typically f- fall into typical historic roles, you know, where I'm just gonna be the walking bass player and do certain fills and certain things and maybe go to a pedal point here whereas John's not thinking on those terms at all. So that right away lets me, as far as the blowing part, feel it and write it a certain way and then compositionally more within the written material john's so technically phenomenal that i could write some very angular things which i am hearing a lot these days i'm very heavily influenced by um over the years by the benny wallace the great tennis saxophone player and and the angularity and the joy and the fun of i like writing that way and, and different contrapuntal lines that i practice and kind of bring joy to my own you know routine with that but to have John a bassist who could cover that ground there's really not too many which poses a tremendous difficulty if he's not available is finding a sub (laughs) you know
0: you talk about the ways in which that same kind of thinking applies to to michael and where you see his role in the train. it's exactly the same mm-hmm.
1: but um part of it is is uh the, but for the blowing section it's it's exactly the same as it is with john is um i write less and give less direction and even within forms now even though a lot of the tunes sound like in the blowing section that there's de- really predetermined form that's not the case in some of them where it's been just open but i know we're going to come as a unit into some structure and form because of our history. I mean it's been like ten years playing together and but what I love about with Michael in the I don't a lot of these tunes I don't have any preconceived notion as to what the groove is or what the rhythm from the drums is gonna be and I don't write anything on it and I don't tell him anything. I might say that the composition has a straight eighth note feel or a swung eighth note feel, but aside from that, he's free to i say this is straight eighth notes just you know be michael serene i mean that's (laughs) and that's what i so just because i his his content and his thing is going to come in on that i can't i don't want to write that or try to force him anywhere i want him to just naturally bring his own thing to, to what we're doing here it's truly even though i'm the composer of all these tunes and the band leader as it were it's truly within that it's very collaborative
0: in terms of composition, is that the kind of thing that you you know you spend some time each day writing? Is are you an inspirational composer, some mix of those two? How do you?
1: Definitely not. I could crank it out. I, I write when I have time. Right. Um, and you know, one of my day jobs, or you know, I, I work as a professional writer. I mean, music writer outside of my, the jazz career. So I know how to write. And there's a great quote in this frank gary the, the 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 architect you know i saw it was the greatest quote i ever heard for for composition is um inspiration is for amateurs <laughs> and you know and and you know what to me that's that's if you could write man and it's time to write and i need a tune today then sit down and write a tune you know what i mean that's that's how i look at it. i don't mean to be i know david murray i met many years ago was a big hero of mine when i was younger and he, he was always preaching that to students and to people. He's just like, man, go home and write a tune. Write a tune every day. Don't judge it. Just finish a tune and move on to the next one. You know, Don't try to create the perfect tune. Create a body of work. And some won't work and some will work. But that's how you get better and that's how you're able to create a book and, and just keep your composition moving forward at the same clip because people have no problem practicing their horn every day.
0: But the practicing the writing is is a whole other thing for most guys. But you did use the the word emotion earlier that some of these tunes are based on emotions or feelings that sure. you're having. So that that makes it sound like there's something in addition to just the craft element.
1: Sure, but I think it. that's more of just being a, just self awareness. Well, if I'm my mm-hmm. the emotional where am I today, uh, you know, and bringing that to your composition. If if cause my life is so busy right now, and between work and family and gigging and that when I do have time to write, that I will write a tune and I'm trying to be more in touch with who I am. And I learned that from Ray. I mean, I, I took, I was mentioning before, I took a couple lessons with Ray Anderson many years ago. And um, he has these rules for improvisation that are just gold. And But I think they're applicable to to composition as well. And it's part of it is just be, know yourself and being in touch with your emotion and, and these things that you're able to just tap into it. And, and I think that's what makes your composition stronger within, you know, to sit down and say, I'm going to write a funk tune today when you're not feeling funky. That's a problem. You know right. what I mean? You can write a <laughs> funk tune like that, <laughs> but so, I think it's better if you write the funk tune on the day you're feeling funky, you know, and sure. the ballad, maybe when you're feeling a little melancholy, for example. Yeah.
0: Um, you, uh, you said to me, I think off the microphone uh, that you're self-taught as a, as a trombonist, I think you actually use the phrase "completely self-taught." Mm-hmm. So that actually means you one day picked up a trombone, and now here we are, low these many years later, and yeah. you figured it out in the meantime. I mean, I guess the very first time I picked it up, I was in third grade, and there was
1: a teacher. We had a teacher who came one day a week, right. and Mrs. Miller. And I mean, there was a beginner book, but she essentially was like, "Here's a trombone. Here's your book. I'll come back next week." and So and she didn't know how to play the trombone. Exactly. So I mean I just kind of figured it out a little bit by little and just stuck with it. It was more I mean completely a blue collar guy. I just loved practicing and stuck with it and you know, when I was but as a result, being not having good teachers, I think as a young player I was far behind other like in my twenties, for example, guys who went to music school or Berkeley or wherever were superior to me on all aspects. But I think one thing that I had going for me is, is that in the long run, I wasn't influenced or coming through with some of those schools where a lot of guys, not necessarily all of them, but could sound alike and have a similarity to their playing that I was free from and
0: kind of able to find my own way. Did that influence the, uh, the way you approached the people you listened to as well, given that you weren't going through some kind of structured academic... You know, here's the 20s and here's the 30s and here's the 50s. Did you find things in your own I think so,
1: yeah. And and I think because I wasn't such a jazz guy growing up. I mean, I I loved jazz from an early age, but I was much more of a listen to anything. I had tons of classical records and new wave. I was a huge Elvis Costello fan and guys, you know. And still (laughs) am? Yeah, so am I. And, um,. But I, I think I had more problems later when I was actually in college and I started taking – even though I wasn't a music major, I was, uh, was taking lessons, um, like composition lessons and, and, and playing in the jazz band at the University of Pittsburgh. And the guy was like, you know, these are the guys, J.J. Johnson and Slide Hampton and these and, – and that's when it was becoming more of a serious jazz listening phase. But the trouble was I really, as much as I think J.J. J. Johnson and Sly and Curtis Fuller are geniuses and amazing, they, uh, they don't resonate with me personally. And uh, I was telling a story when I first heard Ray Anderson and then what that led me to Anthony Braxton and Anthony Davis. And, and it's just that it kind of opened up this mysterious door to a whole new kind of music that i was in pittsburgh we, we we couldn't get that those guys weren't performing there and the record stores didn't have that stuff and there was no internet you know so yeah. it kind of was a amazing journey once that door got cracked open by hearing ray anderson on the radio it was like discovered craig harris and son ron it just went on and on and on so <laughs>
0: regular listeners of this show both of them I think um, they they have heard that this show tends to I tend to kind of get into these little topical ruts where for weeks at a time, I'm talking about roughly the same things, almost no matter who's on the other side of the, <laughs> the mic. And then they just color the the conversation differently because it's a different human being. And so you've just said something that kind of fits in with a, a theme that's been going on for the last maybe month or so on the show, which is this idea about the tradition and where we stand in respect to it. Mm-hmm. And the thing that you just said that I don't think anyone has said exactly the same way on the show is that it's not it's not so much that you would deny the musical importance of the people that we often revere as the kind of mainstream masters, but that there's also an element that it has to mean something to you. It, it has to resonate with you emotionally, and it has to feel like what you want to play. Right. And so it's not just that you have to be grounded in this one tradition, but that you also have to find music that speaks to you that you can learn Totally. From. I think that's it.
1: You hit the nail on the head. I, I think... I mean, I, I don't want to... St- speak out of turn or like i know the whole history of jazz but i think there's a large uh, percentage of players right now who are so stuck in the traditional thing and i don't mean if you want to play that way i don't care how we want to play if you want to play dixieland play dixieland i think it's all great music i love improvised music of all sorts but i think putting certain guys on pedestals and leaving them there for all this all-time hall of fame thing and it's just I think that's not necessarily accurate for for the individuals. I don't think those guys do resonate with with individual if they're honest with themselves. I think the respect factor. That's what I'm trying to say. Like JJ, how could you? There's nothing to disrespect. He's he's a plus on all fronts, you know. But his music doesn't move me. I'll say this as a trombonist. I find him amazing, and I think he swings like crazy, and it sounds beautiful, and I love it. And so. I'll put a J.J. record on that one again, and I'm just like, man, he's amazing. But if I just want to go to something that I just dig and it makes me just filled with joy and just moving at another level, it's not that. Sure. So, and I think a lot of people, get, you know, I think there's a lot of, I, mean, I just think it comes with age, too. You know, I'm 46 now, and I don't think I would be able to speak of it this way, you know, 20 years ago. So I just have a different perspective as I've grown. That's all. But I think finding the people who just, blow you away and i and again so i'm sure for many for jj that does resonate and he is the, the
0: the end all and that's totally great too yeah as you look back over the the decade uh of this band can you can you see some sort of evolution in it if you listen back to the early music does it sound totally like
1: a totally I, I think i think my writing's grown a lot i think my improvising's grown a lot i think I'm more comfortable as band leader, you know. I mean, I've been leading groups, you know, not as long as most guys. I didn't start leading groups till I
0: was probably thirty, and we should just say that's because you were spending a ton of time playing in other people's. Oh yeah, bands, not I mean, you I was playing scene. like three hundred different- nights right. a year
1: with everybody else as a <laughs> right. side man, you know, and traveling and doing. Yeah, I mean, and I think part of it is, uh, I, I just. I had really strong concepts and I'm a little bit shy, to tell you the truth, you know, and it wasn't so ready to step out and, and be the front guy. But um, so I think it just, it's just the journey from 30, say to 46 now is, is follows my more personal evolution and I'm just more comfortable. I'm, I'm more. It's like being in a good relationship. I could I could take risks and know these guys are going to catch me. You know what I mean? And I'll, although now I'm in a place, I'd probably take huge risk anywhere on any bandstand with any, but more with my own tunes though. And if I'm like, why don't we go this way with it? And no, they're just John and Mike are just, they're so amazing. They're going to go anywhere and, and play great music and just react and respond like you would in a conversation, you know, you're sitting sure. around having beers with your buddies and you never know what's going to happen next. And it's just that way on the bandstand. It's just, it's beautiful. So I think that just being more free and f- every year to, to write differently and, and to play differently and not be, I mean I think obviously when I started the Trombone Trio, I there were certain ideas in my head about what that meant. Listening to bass drum Bone for a million years and the great trio records of Albert Mangelsdorf were certainly in my head. Although I think my music from the first record, even though there were Albert Mangelsdorf compositions, was really nothing like his music and conceptually it was different. Um it was my own take. But I think I don't even think in those terms anymore, it's all my own Process now. It's not in relationship to in relation to any other
0: bands. Sure. Is there? Would you say there's any kind of uh, through line, or uh, not really thematic, thematic through line, but some sort of compositional through line that ties this record together for you, or that? Not really. I, I it's
1: it's pretty eclectic. You yeah. Know? Different tunes are written, like I said, from really different days and from different emotional states. Have been a weird couple of years in my personal life, and some of the tunes. I wouldn't say are weird tunes, but really reflect some different introspective moments and different ideas that I had rattling around in my head. Yeah. It kind of all came
0: out in a similar time period, that's all. I, I know other people have uh, have asked about this, and it's in all the press materials and everything, but the name of the record is Sacred Chrome Orb, and the photo on the front is something that I'm glad somebody finally addressed because it needed to be addressed, which is, what the hell are those things? <laughs> <laughs> in, in everybody's <laughs> garden. It's the key social issue of our time that is not being talked about in the mainstream media. And so I'm glad that someone finally had the courage to say, what the hell are those chrome balls That's in it. everybody's garden? That phrase, actually, there was a,
1: a piano player I was on the road with many years ago in my 20s named Duncan Crooks, a killing piano player from Cleveland. And um, he called those yard balls sacred chrome orbs because he was always... Um, he thought it was hilarious that like the ornate altars he would call it around the, the orb you know <laughs> so it's just more of a goof i'm just like i agree what 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 are those things <laughs> right, you know <laughs> but a lot of people have asked i think it's something more than it
0: is it's just kind yeah. of an old joke really that's great and i think it kind of brings us back to to part of what we were talking about at the beginning which is that uh there's a difference between being Serious about the music, or dedicated to the music, and always having to take it seriously. Yeah, in every in every moment.
1: I think that some that are beautifully. I, I totally agree. I think the dedication, and I
0: don't
1: know. I, I personally believe that. I w- I wouldn't say that everyone should ascribe to that, but sure. it's. I, I think we have a lot of fun. I think I I like to think that the fun in the music, is there, and in the, the the sense of. Burlesque in some of the parts, you know, and, and I, I I like that. And but I, at the same time, when I'm sitting down to craft this out, I think the the technical limitations and in, in the seriousness of where I'm trying to get at is evident as well. Mm. So I'm I hope that it's a
0: nice blend. Yeah, put it that way. Uh, I went uh, I guess it's a week ago now to the or maybe two weeks ago to the Undead Jazz Fest, which was you know four nights of a thousand shows. Uh, in Manhattan and Brooklyn. And, uh, after the end of the four nights, in fact, right during the, the midway point of the fourth night, I wrote a comment either on my blog or on Twitter or someplace that, uh, I had seen Anthony Coleman the night before. And one of the reasons I loved his show was, uh, was because he and Brad Jones and Satoshi Takeshi smiled at each other a lot during the mm-hmm. show. And they seemed to be enjoying themselves on stage. And I saw another band that I won't name, super established during those four nights, whose music I also loved, but who didn't look at any point during the show like they were having fun. And I always feel a little weird when I say things like this, because I don't mean you have to ham it up and you don't have to give me a big you know stage grin or any of that kind of thing. But there is something to me. You can feel it when the band feels like, they're having a good time. I think it just is communicated, yeah. which is one thing. Like I have never actually seen this band perform, but I think it comes out in this record, this idea that this is music uh, in which joy plays some part, and that's super important to me as a listener, and it sounds like similarly to you as a performer. And Absolutely. Composer. And I,
1: I I totally hear what you're saying. I don't think there is a – like I know Anthony, and Anthony's hilarious. So, yeah. so first of all, just talking to Anthony makes me laugh, right. you know, <laughs> but – um. I agree. There's so much for me. That's really crucial, if, especially at this point. How hard? I mean, you, you've talked to you know thousands of guys. How hard it is in this day and age, especially to to bring a jazz record to light and the, the amount of money and effort and and to get if you're not having fun man then why do this this is a hard business you know and it's it's well worth doing but i I love getting to the bandstand and something happens and you giggle or give a look and and that doesn't happen every day and it it happens when you're a sideman too it's just the right combination of guys i think that's one luxury you have of of playing with guys you know for a long period i think and there's a history and a relationship and you could be more comfortable and you're not out where i think on some of these festivals and I've I mean I didn't see this year's Undead Festival but I know and there's some amazingly put together groups where I'm deeply moved by their music but the four guys not, don't necessarily know each other and it's they're all concentrating so hard on their maybe they don't have enough rehearsal time or whatever so even though the music's super amazing There's not that sense of fun, and that's okay too, you know, But because I think there's just circumstantially – they're trying to bring the best music they can given what's happening in the life of of that particular project. Sure.
0: Yeah, and and I certainly don't want to sound like uh, every band has to be smiling and laughing while I'm listening to them because I don't don't feel that way. Um, But I feel like if the music doesn't call for you to be deadly serious – I mean Anthony Coleman also, I saw him a month ago doing his Survivor's Breakfast band – and some of that music is no there's no joking involved whatsoever i mean it's about like the deepest of deep subjects i mean when you're writing music about the holocaust i don't expect you to be smiling and laughing on stage but when you're not writing music like that or music that that requires this kind of either grim determination or whatever it might be or just super seriousness then i think it's okay to to let everybody know that this is fun too. I totally agree, and I just—I I guess I, I'm, I'm totally just going on here with absolutely no point. <laughs> I guess my point is that I feel the lack of that. Yeah, in the in the jazz world, in particular, and where I don't feel the lack of it, in a lot of other genres, when I go see music, totally. And that's funny. I think I think that Winton's onto that as much as like that
1: more conservative approach is not for me. Um, I mean, years ago I subbed with the Lincoln Center band and toured with them, and and. That was a great lesson for me because I came from, especially at that time, I was playing with Anthony Braxton and Cecil Taylor and then to go play you know, with that band. But the idea that we want people to be tapping their feet and that whole thing that it's fun and making them move and connect with the audience on that level, I think that's important to me. And again, I'm not saying that should be important to everybody, but I like the idea of bringing more modern music, or not to say that my music's modern, but not looking backwards and in, in sure. modeling enough their older styles and bringing just contemporary music for Joe Feidler to the people but have it they have that aspect I think is that's important to me yeah mm-hmm.
0: look to find new musical inspiration how do you how do you keep yourself engaged as a listener of music not just as a writer and performer given how busy you are and-
1: it's hard I say I'll say that I mean I, I've been really lucky to, to have a lot of I guess it just happened naturally you know a lot of different friends with widely eclectic tastes of music who recommend things and there's one tune on this record called Ethiopia that was inspired by this Ethiopian pop singer named Gigi who this guy this Italian jazz critic who I know recommended to me and it's, it blew me away it's super amazing I don't know what she's singing she's singing in Ethiopian and I don't know what it's about but the soul and, and, and the groove is so powerful and so and even though the tune I wrote is nothing that wouldn't sound anything like that but that that that's this what kind of struck me and I kind of built the tune of my own kind of I stirred it into my own pot and came up with some little concoction but yeah. So I've just been lucky that, like Anthony Coleman, I mean, talking to guys like that with their knowledge of music from classical to klezmer to whatever, you know, he'll oh, you should check out this guy. In fact, yesterday I was doing on a recording session and the, the piano player was telling me about some really well-known country piano player, the, the guy who's like the father of, and I can't remember his name right now, but I'm going to check him out. Why not? You know what I mean? Sure. So I mean, I think... I thinking how many I mean people again you talk to how many jazz records I've listened to and how many times I've listened to Chick and Herbie and Wayne Shorter you know and that's all the greatest little time I ever spent but part of me now wants to just keep hearing weirder and more far out stuff and seeing yeah. what that's going on Yeah,
0: yeah. absolutely uh, you mentioned that you have a, a life as a writer outside of the music that you write for yourself. Um, and that the trumpeter Taylor Haskins was on the show about a month ago, and he has a life also as a commercial yeah. music writer. And one thing he said about that was that it really helped focus for him the various functions of music, the way you can put short music together, the the role music can play in heightening different kinds of emotion and that you can use it to – you know not to manipulate but use it to kind of trigger those kinds of feelings totally. i wonder if that's the experience that you've well, had and well, what kind of i don't actually know what your oh, writing life is like
1: yeah that's funny it's really i mean i know taylor a lot of years too i mean i and i've worked with him in the studio but uh I, actually what i do I, I actually work um for sesame
0: street oh wow and um i okay so now you're my hero yeah. <laughs> so i liked you already but uh
1: i uh so I, I, I do all the orchestrations and arrangements for the songs that the Muppets sing, and I also, but I also compose all the underscoring and incidental music. So, yeah, I mean, you couldn't hit the nail more than the writing four-second cues for Grover when he crashes into a wall. You know, you definitely get the knack of bringing different emotional in, in small little bites. I mean, yeah. it's, it, it's... And especially in one season, you might write eight or nine hundred different distinct cues you know and just have to crank them out so yeah I mean understanding different components to, to, to compose and bring different emotional components is very
0: something I'm in touch with now. <laughs> it's going to be very, very difficult for me to ask you any more questions about jazz now. <laughs> I don't know how I didn't know that's what you did because I read a lot about you before I came here. But that's—I had no idea that's what it was. And so now I'm—it's—I'm going to have to literally physically force myself to not just talk about seismography <laughs> thrusters. So, but okay, but let me ask you to to try to talk about jazz. I'm totally thrown <laughs> off now by finding this. Uh, I mean, as a as a child of the '70s, it's impossible not to find that incredibly attractive. But um, when it comes time to write the music that is a more direct expression of who you are <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> than Sesame Street might be, do you find that the techniques that you use in that kind of music, in that like cue writing, comes to comes to bear on this, or is it not so much a technical thing and more a uh, an experiential thing or a, an approach? Um. That's a really good question. I never thought
1: about it in those terms. Um, I'm sure at an unconscious level, some of the tools in just technical writing are in play that I'm not even thinking about. But I think since I'm writing for myself and I know what it's going to feel like to play this on the trombone versus mm-hmm. that I think there's a much more personal component. For this group, I mean, I've, I have another group I'm probably going to record this year. It's a trombone group called Big Sackbutt. And that's more, I think, since it's not all about just there's multiple horns. So sure. since I'm, I'm thinking more in terms of just compositionally, like I would more on a Sesame Street, like an, from an orchestrator, and but since I'm the only horn playing, and it's kind of a very distinct group, uh, I, it's much more personal, and I don't think mm. about it in the same cue writing style for this particular project.
0: Yeah, can you uh, for for a uh... A smart and charming but lay audience, talk about what uh, multiphonics are and talk a little bit about your, sure. your use of them.
1: Yeah, multiphonics is, is just the technique of playing one note as you and would play a typical note on a trombone or trumpet or saxophone, I mean tuba, and then you either hum or sing a different note at the same time. And the physics of it are that if you are just perfectly in tune, the actual two notes Collide within the instrument and actually create a third note, or some people claim more, four or five, and and obviously like the great champion of this, and the not necessarily the inventor. There's a lot of dispute in the trombone world. Um, is the great late German trombonist Albert Mangelsdorff really developed it into a a whole personal thing, and you know over many years and did solo concerts and used this. Um, so that was the big inspiration. I mean, Ray Anderson and Paul Rutherford and many other trombonists have incorporated it into there, Robin Eubanks even. Um, but I mean, I've been studying it and practicing it for easily 25 years. And and I and I talked a lot about this, with, especially with this new record, is I think one place I've arrived at this particular record, the third trio record I've done, is that the, the way I've used it, I think, is a great departure from anything albert's done i'm not trying to say it's groundbreaking i'm not on the rest of the world's use of multiphonics but in my for myself it's trying to use think more pianistically and using the chord tones and the the overtones that i get as color tones of chords instead of using them as necessarily the root i mean i don't i don't want to get too technical that's probably too much already but no it's i want it to be more fully integrated Into the music and the composition, and not a special effect or some kind of parlor trick. And I think I like to think I've achieved that. That's it's just a fully integrated into our trio sound at this point, and not really any kind of specialty.
0: Well, it's one of the things that that hit me about the way you use it is that is how fluid uh, the multiphonics are. I I think, at least in my listening experience, it's not uncommon to hear people use things like multiphonics when they're playing like long. Tones, you know, sure. they have time to get it in tune over the course of, course of the notes and so on and so forth. But I mean, you like right from the very first track, and this, you know, kind of intimate, fairly fast-paced thing happening, and you're very fluidly using the multiphonics as you move from note to note. Yeah. So it is, it is almost like this series of of block chords or something exactly. happening on the trombone. That was the,
1: that initial tune. Yeah, that's exactly what was more because it's over this pedal point. You know, John just playing over this F sharp pedal and just like a piano player would i mean i think i listened to a lot of mccoy tyner growing up and how he would just you know move around these chromatic and put chords in different over different pedals and i mean it's really the tune's nothing about mccoy tyner but that concept uh, sure trying to bring that and having this different more a counterpoint melody between my voice and the trombone Actually loved how that turned out. But it's just that's just years of practicing to really I mean I still that's part of my daily routine. You know, most guys that you know pick up the horn have a certain amount of fundamental stuff and the multiphonics is part of it. And I know Albert Mangelsdorf, I I saw an interview, I never met Albert, but talked about part of his warm up was actually doing singing exercises at the piano like a vocalist would. Although I don't see it. I tried that years ago, and I don't see the, the correlation for me is a singing voice versus the trying to sing through your horn. I find different muscle groups. and sure. So I think practicing, for me, it works better that way, to practice on the horn.
0: And uh, coming back kind of to the beginning of the interview, it, is it the case that, uh, given that you're going to use the multiphonics that way, that who's playing bass becomes even more important in that? I think so. Uh, I mean, John, yeah. I mean, he knows
1: when to... It's, yeah, it's tricky. It's good and I think again to use the word accompanist, you know, whereas the piano player is comping behind you, is listening and then knows when to be more angular or more static or more percussive and, and so John not, getting away from a more traditional jazz bass player role is sure. really in tune with that. And also the one the one drawback with the multiphonics is playing live, some of them don't speak so on this studio that's fantastic. You get right up on a mic and of course like gold, you know? Yeah. But at a live performance, it's even more so that you need to be much more sensitive when he needs to be more supportive and more play more statically or more pedal to let the polyphonic speak to
0: the audience. Yeah, so, Are, is uh, is that affected even by just like the the character of the room you're in? What multiphonic sound and that kind of thing? Totally, know. you know. And it,
1: most clubs aren't so great. I and mean, we played couple years ago in a little uh, in austria in this little museum and it was very reverberant it was one of the greatest concerts we ever did as because of that it just it just filled the room up with this unique sound and and the the more ambient the sound the really the the better the longer that the all the notes have time to kind of mesh together it sounds like more of a chordal effect sure whereas in a dry room it's some people say it sounds like you're playing underwater right. or you know <laughs> or like a truck's <laughs> driving by. you know it could
0: be really kind of an awkward sound at times. Was it listening to Albert Mangelsdorf that first made you twenty five years ago uh, start practicing?:: Yeah, yeah I had yeah.
1: never heard anything like that. Um, and I know there's some Ray Anderson records where he does, although Ray never made it a full I mean he uses it sometimes, sure that I wasn't quite sure what what it was. And then with Albert, it's so clear, and his his thought process and his his technique was astonishing. Still, I, I mean, I can't do what he did. I mean, I think I do something that's my own, and, yeah. and I'm really happy with it. But And his ability to sing so high, which I can't do through the horn, is staggering. And the pitch and his chordal things. But yeah, I mean, Albert turned my head around. And it's funny, even though I'm a humongous Albert Mangelsdorf fan, I've talked to in other interviews, musically and trombonistically and compositionally i love it but again he doesn't move me so much i was always more drawn to the his compositions that, that with the multiphonics is really the thing i love most about him sure. even though his playing is, is excellent it's just it's a little like we were saying earlier it's just a little more not as fun and free and direct in a more emotional content
0: way yeah and you said that uh, when you first heard him, it was clear enough that you were able to just uh, kind of intellectually figure out how to reproduce that on the trombone.
1: Absolutely, it was so. It's almost like listening to J.J. J. Johnson in that his structure of his solos and his sound is so perfect, and his articulation. It's almost like here's someone giving you a template of how to be a <laughs> right. like killing bebop trombone player, and that's and for Albers the same way. His technique is astonishing, and and the, to be frank, you know the Germans with their audio engineering the, the the recordings are so great right you know it's like so it's recorded
0: inside his brain yeah right? exactly <laughs>
1: so it's just it's a, it was a perfect template like here's it and he did there was a small label called mood records i think mm-hmm. it was and he did a solo record that i got that that was the one because then you stripped away i mean since then i've gotten all of this other solo but that was the first solo albert mangosoff record i had and it was just it was it was a textbook on how to do this and how to practice and so
0: yeah. it was good for me. Uh, are, you, are you the kind of person who, despite the fact that this album just came out, is already thinking about what's going to happen next? Or are you... Uh...
1: Yeah, yeah, partly. I mean, I have this... I was mentioning this other group I'm going to record. Sure. Um, but I I am thinking about the next record already for the trio. and I, Because there's one tune we kind of go rock a little bit on this and kind of funkier. And it felt so good. And that tune playing live has felt so good. Even though... I think, I don't know. I have some ideas to go a little more rock on yeah. with the trio. Even with this, with with not any different instrumentation, still acoustic bass, but kind of like this weird trombone
0: trio rock project. I'd like to do. But well, that, that track ahead. does sound great on here. I mean, it it doesn't feel it doesn't feel put on or anything. I mean, it just feels totally organic. And yeah. it and despite the fact that it's fairly different in character from the rest of the record, it doesn't sound like well, here's all these tracks and this one, you know, yeah. it, it sounds just like another piece of the trio's personality.
1: I think we needed it. I, to tell you the truth. I mean, I, I really feel, I, I made my living, you know, playing in Latin bands for most of my career. I mean, cause just as a jazz trombonist, there's really not a whole lot of work. And, sure. And so the, and I really felt over the years, the whole straight eighth note rhythm and that rhythmic drive, speaks to me like again on some emotional it just really resonates with me so almost all of my compositions are you know straight eighth notes although i'm deeply moved by funkier rock and swinging and bluesy things too so for the first time i was just more looking at the record going in the studio and i thought it's like we were talking about about setting time to write I'm like i need to write another tune and I'm, it's, and, you know, and I was feeling funky that day, you know, yeah. so it's like, that's where, but I'm glad <laughs> I'm really happy. And then that just kind of spawned this whole new thought process. Like, you know what? I think that's next, perhaps. Yeah. You know, I'll see where I am when we get to that point.
0: It seems like, uh, I haven't had this experience personally you know, in a musical setting, but it, it seems like when you've had a band that's existed for a while that's super comfortable like this, and you discover some other element like that, it's almost like figuring, finding like some key on your instrument that you didn't realize oh, was there yeah. before, you know, some setting, and you're just like, oh, here's another thing I can do with this instrument that I have.
1: Yeah. And I think it could be more freewheeling, too. I think, I don't know, I think there's so much untapped music that this trio has, and every time we get together, it's very funny... John and and Michael both say, I wish we had a tour and I wish we had more gigs. And and you you know how it is, it's hard for everybody. And and because every time we come together, which is only a few times a year, uh, it's so magical. But just when you think you're ready to go to the next level, the tour's over, the gigs are, you know, reconnect for three, four months, you know. So it's always, ah. But, yeah, so that was a great moment of, like, feel like, oh, yeah,
0: okay, we could go over here. Yeah. Well, we were talking about that before we started recording about that idea that, uh, you know, in the kind of classic era of, of bebop and hard bop that, you know, if you have five months in a club, the, you're going to see the music evolve not over the course of years but over the course of weeks and months oh, yeah. as every night you get a chance to reexamine it and dig deeper and take new directions.
1: I can't imagine that. I, I can't. I mean, I never have had the opportunity of playing at the Vanguard or something like that. I played one week, one time, years ago at the Sweet, 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 Sweet Basil, Basil yeah. with Jason Lindner's group. And um, we were playing, you know, years on Monday nights at Smalls. And, um, and I remember from the beginning to the end of the week, that one time I had that experience was just stunning. And even music we had played for many years prior to that. Just when you're on the bandstand two sets a night... And just for six nights in a row, imagine like you're saying months in a row. Like it would be. I really wish I could have that opportunity. Yeah, I don't think that's happening anytime soon. Right. <laughs>
0: yeah, uh, yeah. When when you talk about things like you know when that the famous quote when Miles was at the White House and somebody asked him what he did and he said I changed jazz five times. Uh, you think about that? Not to take anything away from uh, the genius that he was, but he he also had the luxury of. Getting to change the music organically by playing it, totally. he didn't just have to sit down in a hut somewhere and th- think up something new. He had a chance to take these four or five other geniuses, stick them on a bandstand for six months at a time. Oh yeah, and you know, hit on and let's see what happens six yeah. months later. He had some luxuries, you know, that yeah.
1: certainly don't exist
0: anymore. <laughs> <Right. you know? laughs> yeah, to put it mildly well man I'm, uh, I'm I'm so impressed with this records and the, and this record and the ones that uh, that preceded it. and it's been a, a real joy to get to know you and uh, to hear about this music thanks for taking the time to do it Thank you so much for having me it's been great thanks Music from Joe Feidler and his album Sacred Chrome Orb. I'm Jason Crane. This is the Jazz Session, sponsored by Matt Rock, our first official sponsor, and presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. You can follow this show on Twitter at twitter.com/jazzsesh. S-E-S-H. You can also follow my personal Twitter account at Jason D. Crane. D is in David, literally D is in David. That's my middle name. And I hope you'll do both those things. I hope you'll tell a friend about the show. You can hop on the mailing list, the email mailing list, which is a great way to stay in touch with the show and, in fact, is the only way to stay in touch with the show that I have complete control over. Uh, Facebook, which I've now abandoned, uh, changed things many times and made it very difficult to get the message out to people. Uh, Twitter I-, I like, but I have absolutely no corporate control over. So my mailing list, my email mailing list, is the only way Uh, I can be sure of getting a message out to people each and every week. So if you join the mailing list, which you can do at thejazzsession.com, and at the top it just says mailing list, and you can click on that and put in your email. If you join that, you'll get one email every Monday. That's it. That's all. I never sell your address. There's no spam. You'll just get an email every Monday telling you who's on the show that week and the following week. There'll be a couple little uh, you know blurbs about the guests that are on that week. And there'll also be usually some links to other jazz things, photos I've taken and recaps I've written about shows I've seen, the occasional poem chucked in there, that kind of thing. So if that sounds like something you would like to have in your email inbox each week, just go to thejazzsession.com and join the mailing list. And now that's it. Enough of this digital stuff. Get out there in the real world, please, and support live jazz whenever and wherever you can. And come back next time for another conversation about jazz on the Jazz Session.
2: Bye. 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 Bye.